you wanted the best, you've got the best podcast. The hottest, hottest. podcast in the world. In the world. The Chris Voss Show, the preeminent podcast with guests so smart you may experience serious brain bleed. Get ready, get ready. Strap yourself in. Keep your hands, arms, and legs inside the vehicle at all times because you're about to go on a monster education roller coaster with your brain. Now, here's your host, Chris Voss. Hi, folks. It's Voss here from thechrisvossshow.com. The Chris Voss Show. Dot com. Hey, we're coming here with another podcast. We certainly appreciate you guys tuning in. Be sure to give us a like, subscribe to us. You can see the video version of this on YouTube.com for slash Chris Voss. Who wouldn't want to see the video version of it? Because uh, I'm so beautiful. Brad Pitt calls me for tips on uh, being incredibly good looking. So you might as well watch it on YouTube. You can also see us. We now, one of the newest syndications we've added is Amazon Music. So if you like Amazon Music, you listen over there. You can listen to the podcast over there. The Chris Voss is over there, uh, which is pretty awesome. You can also go follow me on goodreads.com. Uh, look for Chris Voss. Uh, we've got a new group we're building over there for a book club. We're going to give away books and talk about our authors and uh, interviews and all that sort of good stuff. So go to goodreads.com. You can also go to the CVPN or Chris Voss Podcast Network, subscribe to all nine podcasts over there and all that good stuff. We have a most excellent guest, as always, on the show today, Bruce Van Dusen. Uh, Bruce has had more than a four-decade-long career as a successful director of commercials. Whether you wanted to or not, guess what? You've seen his work, tons of it. His memoir about the ins and outs of his career and life is his in his new books, we've got it right here, looking at 60 stories, about 30 seconds. How I got away with becoming a pretty big commercial director without losing my soul, or maybe just part of it, published by Simon & Schuster. It just came out on September 15th. Welcome to the show. How are you, Bruce? Good. Thanks, Chris. Thank you for having me here today. Well, Awesome sauce. 60 stories in about 30 seconds. Uh, give us some plugs on where people can find you on the interwebs. Uh, my website is very simple, unless you have my name, uh, brucevandusen.com. So it's uh, B-R-U-C-E-V-A-N-D-U-S-E-N. Uh, that's got a link to all the different places where you can buy the book. There's a little bit of story about the book and it has a contact information about my work as a director in commercials and in features. Um, I have an Instagram account. Currently some other person named Bruce Van Dusen got there first. So I have to be Bruce Van Dusen one, which makes me sound, you know, like I'm going for some leadership position in China, but I'm not. Um, That's where you find it. And then Twitter, nobody else had it. So I'm Bruce Van Dusen. Well, you know, he's cool because he's on the Insta, you know, yeah. the kid, where the kids are. Yeah. yeah. On the Insta too, he's leading. Why, but. He's leading. <laughs> there yeah. you go. So what motivated you to write this wonderful book and tell us all about you and your life? You know, I think that uh, when you write a behind the scenes book and you sort of are telling stories outside of school, you have to be pretty confident that your career's kind of in its end stage because otherwise the knives are going to come out and you're going to be over and done with. So it wasn't as if each chapter felt like it was a nail in my coffin, but it was, uh, it was definitely something that I could get into Chris because I'd survived and very Mm -hmm. few guys survive as long as I have you, you can relate to this. Anybody in media can relate to this. Um, And I thought that, Uh, In a strange way, if I could put these ridiculous stories, somewhat educational, but ridiculous nonetheless, together in such a way and kind of unify them with a little bit of what was going on in my life, it might be interesting for people to read, particularly interesting for people to read who might be interested in going into the film business because there are just zero texts in that that are helpful um, the only ones are written by people who've never earned a nickel in it. This, which summed up my experience in film school. It took me a long time to realize I was listening to people who were unemployed in the film business, but they were giving me advice about how to become employed in the film business. Um, so I thought it would be entertaining. I tried to write it, Chris, for, 
to entertain people for a general reader. And I call it, you know, people say, what is it? And I go, it's kitchen confidential, but it's unfolding on film sets. So, and not, not nearly as much cocaine. But uh, <laughs> Hollywood cocaine? Yeah, I don't know how that happened. And in no food, way. come on, no. <laughs> Just right there at the at the food bar that they have with the thing, yeah. right? Um, the uh, so give us an overview of the book. You, I, I mean, I imagine the the title kind of tells you what it is: sixty stories, about thirty seconds. Kind of sounds like a early love story of a sixteen year old boy. But um, yeah, tell us yeah. what the book's about. It's um, it started out as being the kind of uh, thing where you'd I'd go to places. You know, I lived in the suburbs. I raised my family in the suburbs, and I lived next. Uh, I lived around people who had normal jobs, and people. And then somebody would say, "Hey, what do you do?" And I go, "I direct commercials." And they go, "Oh shit, that's really that must be so much fun." And you go, "Yeah, you know, it's no, it's not that much fun." <laughs> And they go, but doesn't really interesting shit happen all the time? And you go, stuff happens. And so have you ever met? Yeah, I have met that person. Have you? Yeah. And, but then the stuff that really, I think, resonated and was funny was the, or interesting, was the stuff that was weirder. You know, I got my first job, uh, came to New York. My roommate had a master's degree in film, I got a, a, a bachelor's degree. Guy's the most boring guy on earth. I mean, just fucking so boring. And um, he's out looking for work, dropping resumes. I am, he gets a job. He comes home, I got a job. I said, oh, Jesus, how did that happen? Next morning, he goes off to his job. He calls me really early. And I said, what's wrong? He said, do you know how to drive a clutch? I said, yeah, I'm a guy. And he said, uh, I don't. And I said, well, what does that mean? He says, well, I'm supposed to drive a truck today. So I drove the truck and uh, I was gainfully employed working on a film, uh, working on a television commercial, which is a business I didn't know existed, Chris, until that morning. And I walked in and saw 70 large men, all men, building a set, moving furniture, lighting it. Um, and making a minute rice commercial. And I thought, oh, okay, let me see how this works. And that sounded ridiculous because it was about the clutch. The first job I got directing a commercial was uh, came about because I agreed to go to a meeting with a guy who was a huge electronics retailer. Mm-hmm. And the meeting had been scheduled, but two days before he'd been attacked, um, by a gang. So the meeting took place in an ICU at a hospital in New York. He's in full traction, can't speak. His jaw is broken. He's got air oxygen tubes. He's, he's, he's completely fucked up. And, um, his ad guy says, you know, uh, Eddie's got a lot to do. Let's get the, let's, let's get the meeting on the road. And I thought he has a lot to do. I mean, he's in, he's in, he's in bed. But in any event, I pitched him my ideas. He could not speak because his jaw was wired shut. But Holy the, crap. The grunts were interpreted by his partner who said, okay, go ahead and make an ad. And I made an ad and they wrote it up in the village voice. And uh, there I was, a commercial director. There so, you go. Those it, are some hell of a stories, man. Life, yeah, life comes at you weird sometimes, huh? It does. It, it comes at you weird and... Uh, I think one of the things that I did uh, and maybe a lot of my peers didn't was I benefited from being when I try to make myself sound, you know, like the shit I say, you know, I was a little naive. Basically I was stupid. I didn't know better. So Mm -hmm. I would go to any meeting. I'd get on any phone call. I'd do anything because I figured, you know, I'm not doing anything. And it might be an opportunity. I might meet somebody. Yeah. Amazingly, 43 years later, you know, 45 years later, I'm still shooting television commercials. And I have all these peers who, you know, dropped off the planet just when the stuff started to happen for them. And they go, you know, I don't shoot. I don't shoot dishwashing detergent. You know, that's not. Oh, yeah, I don't do that. I go, well, they're going to pay you. 
Yeah. But I mean, I mean, I'm doing, this is really art. I'm trying to do mostly <laughs> stuff that feels like Rochamon meets Blazing Saddles and it's kind of in a mashup there. And, you know, I don't, if they get me, I'll do the job, but if they don't get me, I'm not going to, I go, okay, great, good. I'll, I'll do, do the it. job. Yeah. yeah. The check still clears the money, you know, the money yeah. still goes to the bill. Your you, people you owe money to uh, buys food. Seems to work for everybody. You know, there's. I never, there's I never understood that. the word. I never understood the word mercenary as being a like a criticism. I thought <laughs> that's a practical guy, right? <laughs> I don't want to do the dishwasher soap. I moved up to paper towels, and we're not yeah. going back. It's kind of like it's kind of like when you move from uh, TV to movies, you just don't go back. So I'm sticking with the paper towels. <laughs> yeah, there is that. <laughs> so uh, there's a lot of chapters in this book with a lot of interesting chapter titles. Um, and uh, what what were some of the stories that you liked out of your book? Well, uh, I liked um, I the things I liked most were the stories where I mean I make fun of certain people, but I also tried to make sure that if you were keeping score, that the person I called an asshole the most was me. Uh Uh, Because, you know, I was plodding my way through and I was terribly insecure. And, uh, you know, I had a little bit of skill and I got more as it went along. But I tried to make sure that I was, um, you know, it was equal opportunity name calling. But when you're doing commercials and you're working for people who are writing these things, there's so many times, Chris, where people say things to you that you just cannot fucking believe. I mean, I'm doing a spot for a laxative Mm -hmm. and the spot is really simple. It's just a close up of a woman talking about not being able to move her bowels. And she's a Broadway actress. She's won, she's won a Tony Award. I don't know why she took this job. Actually, I do, I do know why. She took it because she was going to make $75,000 in residuals. But we shoot for about an hour, and I think we're done. And I turn, and this copywriter standing next to me, looking really unhappy, and I said, I think we're good here. I think we're done, don't you? He goes, no, no, we're not done. I said, what do you mean? He goes, she doesn't get it. I go, she doesn't get what? He said, peristalsis. Peristalsis is the scientific term for going to the bathroom. And I said, oh, I I definitely think she gets peristalsis. He goes, I don't. (laughs) I I said, I tell you, I'm very... There's few things in my life that I'm 100% certain of. This woman knows exactly how peristalsis works. Yeah. He goes, somebody's got to explain it to her. And I said, well, that's not going to fucking be me. <laughs> <laughs> and he that said, well, crazy. what are we going to do about it? So I said, I think you're going to have to talk to her. You're the one. Yeah. <laughs> it's, your, so, it's your thing, buddy. Yeah. <laughs> so he goes over. You know, and he starts, stands there like he's a therapist, you know, and he's nodding his head. She won't even make eye contact with him. And wow. he holds for for about 10 minutes. He comes over and he goes, she gets it now. <laughs> I'll bet. I'll bet. <laughs> so you have that. And, and That's a uh, hilarious story, dude. That guy did not. He, you know, I, I shot a few more takes and I said, what do you think? He goes, totally gets it now. It's completely different. I said, yeah, 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 yeah. totally. <laughs> but you'd have, you'd have, uh, you oh, know, the day my first kid was born, we go to the hospital. My wife's in labor. It's early. And the OBGYN says, uh, you're going to have the kid. And I said, when? He said, no, not for a long time, like seven o'clock tonight. I said, oh, so I could go shoot a commercial. He goes, well, I don't know. What, how long does that take? I said, it's going to take me like four hours. He said, yeah. I suddenly realized it was Jewish holidays. It was Rosh Hashanah. He said, I'm going to synagogue. I'm going to temple. So I'm, not going to, I'm leaving the hospital. I'll be back in like eight hours. I said, <laughs> somehow my, my wife, my ex-wife, uh, thought this was all fine. So I go up to shoot a commercial, Chris, for Japanese Airlines. 
and we've hired a woman who's going to talk in a monologue. Mm -hmm. And I'm really nervous. I got to get this thing done. And we've been shooting for about 15 minutes and I'm looking through the camera and suddenly I'd look and I notice something's really wrong. Like she's like, she, she looks like she'd had her wisdom teeth removed. And what's uh, happened is that her left ear has popped out. So it's out now at a right angle to her head. Makeup guy runs over to me and he said, I had to glue her ears to her head. I said, what? He said, yeah, <laughs> her ears stick wide out on each side. So they're glued to her head. I said, well, can you keep them glued to her fucking head? Because this is not going to work. He goes, I'm going to do the best I can. I'll do the best. I said, I, I got to get out of here. And he said, well, the glue's going to hold for like 10 minutes at a time. So I said, just keep gluing those ears shut. Keep gluing those ears shut. So I shoot about 10 minutes and all the clients are Japanese. There's 20 of them. It looks like taking a Pelham one, two, three. I can't tell if anybody can understand English. I don't know what's going on. I just want to make sure that the ear, they don't notice the ears. So I spend two and a half hours shooting with these ears popping out. And then finally we get a take that everybody likes. And I run over and say, ah, you know, I think we're done. And then I hightail it out of there, get to the hospital. My wife's up in the delivery room, the, the OB is late. And she goes, what took you so long? I said, I, I, you won't even, you don't it's impossible. Yeah. I, ears. <laughs> you don't hear girls' ears were popping out. So those are the kinds of things that, I mean, it's easy to laugh now, mm -hmm. but when you're in the middle of it or when you're having an adult male, I mean, somebody who's like a, probably got a college education and he comes up to you and says, I don't think she understands peristalsis. And you, <laughs> and you, you feel like you just want to go out to like the, you know, the perspective of the space shuttle and look down on this and say, what the fuck? What <laughs> happened here? What are you, what are you doing? Yeah, I can I can identify with that. Um, for about six years, one of the companies that we owned, we used to have a nice little cluster of companies before the 2008 recession. And uh, one of the companies we owned was uh, a talent agency, and we did acting and modeling. And we were in Utah at the time, and, and we would send stuff to Touch by an Angel, Everwood, and and there, there was a lot of shooting going on in Utah back then because of the strike that had gone on in California. Yeah. And so we you know i would go sit on casting things for films and stuff and and uh and it was but there was always those people in hollywood that they just can't leave it alone like just like okay let's do this they've got to be like we we must turn it into art and you know and everyone's trying to carry that gauntlet so everyone's fighting with each other over it and you're just like whatever. yeah no it's it, it, it's um I think in commercials, one of the reasons that you, you run into that kind of personality is because people are just inherently embarrassed by what they do. You know, when I, when I started in the late seventies, early eighties, if I was in a social situation, you know, and I said, I direct commercials, I would usually cover my mouth for the commercials part. I would, you know, I direct commercials. It was not cool. And then it started to get a little cool because uh, people who were doing music videos started doing commercials yeah. and movie guys did it. It mainly, all those guys started to do it because there was all this money in it. Yeah. But then you'd, you know, you'd, you'd cringe when you'd get to an event where you'd have to be in a room with like five or six commercial directors. And it's just, you know, it's like a bunch of douchebags and backwards baseball caps and Australian fireman <laughs> shoes and, sunglasses indoors and they're doing things like this, you know, and you're going, yeah. stop it. Stop it. <laughs> what are you doing? <laughs> and they'd be still saying, and you'd find also many times when I would shoot famous people, famous, you know, actors or athletes or politicians, they'd usually cringe when you'd come into the room because they'd done something like this before. And I knew that they were expecting the guy in the backwards hat and the glasses and saying, mm -hmm. you know, what I'm trying here is to take, you know, the emotion 
of the Civil War, but bring it to this message and the inclusivity of it will take into the, you know, and you just glaze the room. <laughs> and my, my whole approach was just to come in and say, hi, nice to meet you. This is going to take me about five fucking hours, then we'll be home. And uh, do you have anything particular you want to drink? And they go, this is a home run. This guy gets it, you know, which is just, we're going to work and, and get out of here. That was I didn't think that was a terrible thing to look at it and say, you know, it's a job. Can Maybe be this fun. is why you had such a long story career is, is because, you know, you approach his work and you, you do your job and, you know, you go home. Pretty much. It's, no. I think it helped. I, <laughs> I, I definitely think it helped. It made me a very big favorite with Cruz. Um, and I think it made me, a, you know, I had a lot of celebrities that I worked with who wound up requesting that I come back to, to work with them because you know, it was just no, no bullshit. I didn't, I didn't really think what we were doing. I thought what we were doing was important. There was mm-hmm. a lot of money involved yeah. and there were a lot of people who needed to be satisfied, but I just didn't think it was so serious. Yeah. You know, I, I have you ever lived in California? Uh, I would 10 year period. I was there six months of the year, so, yeah. but always Southern California. Yeah. I don't you? know if New York's the same way, but when I moved to California, I grew up in California. When I moved back for about three years, um, I would go to parties and some of them were like for AT&T and different uh, companies that we review and stuff on the Chris Voss show. Uh, so they weren't like Hollywood parties, although we, we, you know, we went to some Grammy parties and things like that, but it was so insane how you would go there and like everyone's talking about, about the sets they were on. And, you know, I was on a set today with, with freaking Meryl Streep and, and, you know, whatever. And they're all just going around, just hashing this out as to what they've been doing. And you're like sitting there looking at them going, uh, was that in the extras uh, section? <laughs> you know, and, uh, and then they come to me and they go, so what, what do you do, Chris? And I'm like, I, I have podcasts and website review stuff. And they're just like, tisk, tisk. Oh, yeah. you. And I just be sometimes I'd have fun with them and I'd fuck with them and make up stories like you know I just try and fit in but I just make up stories to fuck with them like yeah I was just having lunch with uh you know so and so you know <laughs> and like really I'm like yeah yeah me and still yeah. me and Steven Spielberg uh, he optioned a thing with me and uh, I think we're gonna do it <laughs> you know I just fuck with them <laughs> it's it's the it's the constant in it, you know, you, my, it's not just commercial directors. I mean, it's, everybody's like, yeah, I've got a, it's all, something it's, I've got something in development at Fox. Yeah. You yeah. do. You, well, <laughs> I'm talking to this guy. What really? Well, I have his email. And it's, <laughs> yeah. It's that's in New York. Exactly it, what it's like in New York. There's an expression. <laughs> you'll be hanging out on a, on a, on a set and, People you have, I have love hate with them. The Teamsters, you know, they're uh, they're challenging, and they are all over big unionized movie sets. Mm-hmm. You go near a bunch of Teamsters, and uh, you know it's the summer, and a movie opens, Spider Man opens. Uh, you're at some some event. There's eight Teamsters there, and they start talking. They go, "Oh, did you see my picture opened?" I go, "What?" Yes, my picture, Spider-Man is my picture. Meaning the guy drove, uh, you know, a prop truck on it for 16 weeks. Yeah, it's my picture. Okay, that's great. It, people who come in contact with it, there was, there's a story in the book of I'm shooting an, an ad for a big insurance company, and I needed to get in a hospital. And the only kind of hospitals that allow you in are hospitals that are in really shitty shape, but they need the money. We found this one in the Bronx. I didn't realize the guy who was in charge of dealing with film companies, he now decided he was like a, a studio executive. Oh. So I'm walking around with him. He's this, you know, this schmo lives in great, great, great neck. And uh, he said, what are you looking for? I said, I want to find something that's got a hallway, but maybe a window at the end or something that I can see that there's a skyline out there. He goes, let me, let me show you this. So I go over and I go, that is a great view. He goes, yeah, Marty likes that view. I go, Marty? He goes, Scorsese. He loves that (laughs) shot. I go, 
He does. He goes, yeah, yeah, yeah. Let me show you another shot Marty loves. And we walk to another hallway. He goes, sit, go, go down here low. This, and I go, I've sort of put my head down. He goes, sit on the ground like Marty does. You know, and I said, oh okay, God. okay. And I said, so, do you, so I said, you know him? He goes, you know, I did a little, little Wall Street picture here, you know, and, you know, I did a scene or two. I go, yeah. what? <laughs> what? He goes, yeah, he just thought I had something, you know, so Matt and I and Leo, mm. you know, we had a fun little, I said, get out of here. You're an actor. He goes, not really. You know, I just, just myself, just being myself. <laughs> well, it sounds like you have a real, uh, your feet are on the ground. Like you have a really good uh, circumference in your head of like who you are, where you're at, what you're doing. Like you, you're not, you're not getting lost in the bullshit minutia of it all. Well, thank you. I, I think, I think that's inevitably what happens once you get some miles yeah. under your feet. I well, hope probably need it too to keep your sanity. Cause I remember doing stuff with Hollywood and it would just get stupid. Like yeah. just stupid stuff. And, and we, and there was all sorts of insanity around it. Like we, I think one time we had, uh, I, we had, uh, who was it? Sean, uh, he was the, he was the stepson of Kirk, Kurt Russell. No, Kirk. Uh, Kirk oh, you had Douglas. one of Kirk Douglas's kids. We had Sean, Sean Douglas come up yeah. one time and we start getting these calls at my agency with this drunk agent and they're like, Hey, we're over at the bar. Come on over. I think it was Sean. Um, and, uh, and so, and, and then they're like, we left our, we left our tape at your front door, our reel. <laughs> and we're like, what the fuck? Why is someone calling me from a bar and they want me to come over? And uh, so we watched the tape and he's just, he's just excoriating every film he's been on, like Iron Eagle 4, and he's doing stand-up, just wrecking his producers and directors. So I called some of the people. I'm like, I'm like, hey, man, what's this dude doing? Like, why is this guy banging on my door? His bro- Oh, and he's doing jokes about how um, – He's scarred because Michael, all the girls would get to know him and then go to Michael. He later died of a drug overdose, so it was kind of sad. Yeah. But, yeah, all my friends in Hollywood are like, just run from that dude. But the dude would keep calling us. Like, it was just, just you know, this is crazy shit. So you got an interesting uh, chapters in the book. Uh, Tom, Wait, Tom Waits, which is kind of interesting to me. I don't know what stories behind that. Uh, Polishing Turds is the <laughs> name of a chapter here. Yeah. Uh, let's see. Uh, Meet the Beatles. Uh, what else is on here? It's, this is not brain surgery. Uh, what, was there anything that, uh, surprised you in going back to it? Was there anything that, uh, you stuck out at you? Like, do you have a favorite story? I think what stuck out at me was that I, that there were so many ridiculous incidents and, uh, and also that I had, probably for the first 10, 15 years, Chris, I really behaved like an asshole. I mean, I was so insecure and conflicted and not sure how a director was supposed to behave because I didn't have a role model. I didn't have a mentor. I didn't have somebody who would just watch me do this and then bitch slap me afterwards and say, could you shut it? You know, shut up. They're paying you. So I think what one of the things that jumped out at me was that I was able to get through that first 10, 15 years where I really learned how to do it. Mm-hmm. And then by 15, 10, 15 years, that was a point where I learned when to be an asshole because mm-hmm. in this, in any sort of creative job, you can be the nicest person in the world, but eventually because you're going to have people around you who are all going to want to throw in their two cents. You have to be able to have the, uh, a personality that eventually just says, no, we're doing it my way. And you're, you're not scared about stepping on some toes. I think uh, it sounds serious, but I think it's a really accessible thing to any viewer. Look, my, my job, most people flee the end product of my job to go take a leak. They don't want to, they don't want to watch it. But if I, so I've got a really high bar to get people there. And when you'd have 30 people telling you about how to do something, you'd think you guys just don't want this to be good. Do you? 
Yeah. You're like all this money is changing hands, but everything you're doing is working in service of making this shitty. And mm-hmm. eventually I would say to people, you know, it's kind of like you're the director and they're, they want you to solve the problem, but they've arranged it so that it's like the pilot has to leave the cockpit just as you've left LAX and you're going flying to London and check in with the guy in seat three F and say, how do you think the flaps are looking on the right, on the right (laughs) wing there? And the guy doesn't have a fucking clue about the flaps, but because he's in a first class seat, the pilot's been told, you got to ask him his opinion. (laughs) Well, that's, that's a problem of any business. You you get too many cooks in the kitchen and it's just a nightmare. And there has to be somebody who rises up and goes, "Hey, I'm the one, and and this is uh this is where it goes from here." And and I'm there's a reason you're the director, right? <laughs> well, I used to find I I would be I just sit in my fair share, as I'm sure you do, of meetings, which are soul killing, soul killing, and to uh, exercises in time. Um, but I would be I would always observe people to see if who anybody had really interesting transferable expert skills at being able to take somebody's totally shitty attitude but their power and completely diffuse it. You know, I'd have to sit with all these people who, you know, were paying me a lot of money and I'd have to often, you know, nod my head like a trained monkey and say, Yeah. <laughs> Yeah. I mean, I hear you. That was an expression I really liked. There was one guy I watched. I thought that's the stupidest expression in the world. And then I thought, no, that's the greatest all purpose expression I've ever it heard. Is. Somebody and they go, I hear you. What does yeah. that mean? What I does that you, fucking man. mean? <laughs> I hear you. And they can hear it as being, wow, I'm really being understood or he gets yeah. me. And it could be me saying it, which means my ears hear you. I don't, I don't give a fuck, and you should probably yeah. shut the fuck up now, right? Yeah, but I did hear you. <laughs> oh, that was the other thing I was going to tell you. You mentioned how the producers would walk around with the thing. When I go to the California parties, they would have like a little camera monocle, or I don't know what it is, but it's yeah. the camera eye, you know, and they just be walking around going like this through the party. You're just like, are you fucking serious? You're an extra in, in you know, whatever the thing is. Uh, you got some other good <laughs> chapters in here. Like, this is an entertaining book, How to Be an Asshole. Uh, when I went blind, uh, show me the money, Marty and me. I think that was probably the dude in the hallway. Uh, and Bronson and Eastwood, that's kind of interesting. Is that a story about actual Bronson? It is. It is. I was hired to do a couple of commercials, public service commercials. And the premise was good premise was that three Hollywood tough guys would each talk about, you know, birds or, little bunnies or something. It was cute. So we did Lou Gossett Jr. We did Charles Bronson and Clint Eastwood. And the only time that I know that he ever appeared in what would be called a television commercial. So Lou Gossett was fine. And then next day I have Charles Bronson. I'm about 32 years old. I'm really, I'm way over my head, Chris, but I'm, you know, I think I'm going to get it done. And Charles Bronson gets out of the limo and I can see steam coming out of his ears. Oh, and I introduced myself and he goes, what do you do here? I said, I'm the director. And he, <laughs> and he goes, uh, somebody better tell this fucking limo guy how to drive around LA. And the, you know, the limo guy's standing there. He looks, he's so uncomfortable looking. He looks like he's eaten, you know, street food in Somalia. He's like having huge gut cramps. He's in horrible shape. And Bronson, I said, let's get you over into makeup and we'll figure this out. So I got over and he, on the way over, he goes, the script sucks. Do you know that? I go, yeah, I know it's, it's not that good. I know. He goes, but I'm going to work on it. So it'll get better. I said, that's great. Go to you the probably get up. that a lot. Huh? Yeah. Yeah. Always the script sucks. Um, so I go back to the limo driver. I said, what happened? He says, that's all total bullshit. The fucking guy made me drive him to a specific Walgreens in the Valley and sent me in to buy mascara for him. I said, he did? He said, yeah. And that's why we're late because I had to go out of my way and then I had to get on the 101 and it was jammed. I wouldn't go this route. I said, all right. So we go do the thing with Bronson. Uh, He leaves. 
the limo drivers saying, and you know what? I had to pay my 20 bucks. So we give the limo driver 20 bucks. Nobody wants Bronson's autograph. He does his job well. The next, so the next day I've got Clint Eastwood. I'm terrified. I'm out in the parking lot in the morning with my producer. And I say, this looks a little short here. Where is, where is Clint's trailer? She goes, he doesn't have one. I said, what? She said, yeah, he didn't want one. He said, he'd just come. I said, well, do we have the same driver as we had yesterday? He said, no driver. He said, he's driving himself. Holy shit. His own stuff. Mm-hmm. I said, you are fucking me. You are fucking me. This is the biggest movie star in the world. He's driving himself. Yeah. Right on cue, Buick station wagon drives in. Clint Eastwood gets out. I go over and I say, uh, Mr. Eastwood, hi, I'm Bruce Van Dusen. He goes, Clint, Clint is fine. And I said, mm-hmm. oh, okay. I said, I'm just checking, you know, the car and the this. He goes, nah, Bruce, I don't, I'm, I'm very happy. Just, I'm kind of interested. Maybe let's go get a coffee and let's just work. Wow. World's nicest guy, walk on the set. He knows two of the guys in my crew. Everybody asks after their kids. Wow. Um, everything nice. Everything nice. And the strangest part was that I'm, I, I'm talking to him, and I think it's a little different. You know, he's, this, he's Clint Eastwood, but it's a little different. We roll the camera to do the first take, and suddenly his eyes change, his voice goes down an octave, and he starts talking. And I go, oh, this is why he's a movie star. He, can, mm-hmm. he puts on this persona, and it, you know, it, was, it was great. And at the end, of, you know, we do 10 takes. I turn to the agency. I said, I, I really can't with a straight face ask Clint Eastwood to do this again. It's like, what, better? Yeah. And as he leaves, everybody wants an autograph, and he signs an autograph. And as he's driving out in his Buick, Chris, we're in the Pasadena Gardens, mm. three tourists recognize him, you know, and just start screaming. Yeah. He stops his car, signs an autograph, hi. And I think here was a lesson that I applied on everything that I found, which was whether I was dealing with Clint Eastwood or uh, Michael Schumacher, the greatest Formula One driver, or Andre Agassi, or any of the people who were really the best in their field mm-hmm. were also nice. Really? The ones who were not quite the best had more of a tendency to be a little bit needy, a little, have a little bit of a, of a tendency to be a diva, have something to prove. Um, my experience, maybe it was also that, you know, I would swear as soon as I'd meet people, I'd try to tell them, you know, this is just not going to be a fucking big deal. Let's get it done. Mm -hmm. I think most people who were used to being in the limelight were happy that maybe for a day, it was just going to be work. They knew how to work. Yeah. So it's interesting. It's interesting how you you made that assertion, and and the people that that are the nicest, that are the most uh, the most uh, human, I guess maybe, um, were the successful ones, and the people who are always putting on airs kind of maybe had to put on airs because they have to because I don't know they need everything they can to buck themselves up, or maybe they're just lost in the whole BS of it all. Yeah, I think they're probably. Listen, no one's born famous. Yeah. Maybe if maybe if you're in a royal family, you're born famous, but nobody's born famous. And, you know, I think the, the particularly in Los Angeles, you know, you would encounter people who had entourages and they had their people and you had to go through their people. And it usually meant that there was going to be some bullshit. I mean, Clint Eastwood literally had no people. He showed up by himself. Yeah. Yeah. And uh, <laughs> I was always a good sign. Musicians sometimes would have them. I, I enjoyed, uh, once I got over the fact that I thought that, you know, somebody who was really well-known was going to bite my head off and figured out a way to deal with them where it reduced the chances of that happening. Those became kind of fun jobs to do because you'd, you'd really enter into weird lives. Famous yeah. people lead weird lives. I'm, and I'm glad I'm not one of them. Yeah. Did you ever come up with the theme throughout your, you know, like some, some directors, uh, even in commercials, cause a lot of like music guys got into commercials. Um, did you ever come up with a sort of 
like when we watch your commercials, can we always tell that they're your commercials sort of thing? Like, a, like you're the Martin Scorsese of, of commercials yeah. or something. Uh, yeah, I was, I was always doing the ones where bodies were in <laughs> trunks of cars. Now the um, it's, a, it's a very good question because it, it's a very good question because it has to do with a little bit of how you distinguish yourself in that weird business mm-hmm. and get people to look for you. Um, but it can also be a little bit of a curse in my business. It's pretty much broken down. You have guys who are comedy directors and then you have people who do beauty commercials. You have people who spend their whole lives taking pictures of hamburgers and pancakes. Yeah. Um, I, and then there are ones who are more storytellers. I would, I saw pretty early on that I wanted to be more of a generalist, Chris. I, I, you know, I was, I liked being funny, but I wasn't as good at being funny on film. Um, but I found that I was pretty good at doing these um, commercials that people like phone companies or insurance companies or networks or, or airlines would do, where the goal was to get a viewer to cry in mm. 60 seconds. So strangely, with my mouth and you know, my approach to the whole thing, one of the things that I, I kind of distinguished myself as was a director who would do these commercials where people would kind of choke up watching them. Oh, and I yeah. thought that was a, I found that to be very satisfying work. Um, um, you, you're in a state where, uh, you know, the, the Latter-day Saints, made themselves famous for years with these commercials that they were doing. Um, Amazing 60 second commercials about families and friendship and Mm. all sorts of things. Um, But then I was doing it, you know, with a slightly ulterior motive where, Oh, her husband died by that card. Uh, So, you know, (laughs) a little bit of cross purposes, but at least I could get them to, you know, have a reaction. Uh, made me feel like I was more of a filmmaker. There you go. There you go. You're having that Oscar moment in yeah. 30 seconds. Yeah. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> oh, that's awesome sauce. Yeah, I love I love the uh, the entertainment that's in your book. It's just hilarious. I mean, just reading the, some of the chapters, I fucking hate Steve as a chapter. <laughs> Shooting in shitholes. You're not my first. Please shut up. <laughs> I mean, pimps and gimps. Uh, wow, that, that must be dude. Where's my car? Um, yeah, some of the chapters in here just complete entertainment and fun. And and yeah, I mean, just Hollywood is such a crazy place. And so dealing with it and and its people, and everything else. Um, I mean, there's probably a second book here coming up, isn't there? With all the other stories. <laughs> Well, I had, I took, yeah, I took plenty out. Um, I, <laughs> I took plenty out. I think one of, I think one of the things that also people will find, uh, maybe they'll find interesting in my book is, you know, many young filmmakers, you kind of, they don't want to be, make a movie. Mm-hmm. I get it. That's right. So I looked at when I went into commercials, which is kind of by mistake, I thought, oh, it's, I'm going to have a plan here. You know, so I'm going to do this for about five years and I'll really learn how to do it. And then I'll segue into making movies. So I segued into making movies and things look, look good. You know, like the first movie I made got into Sundance and Toronto and I got all these distribution offers. And, and then the movie came out and it got pretty shitty reviews, you know? And so there was nobody banging on my door to make a, make another movie right away. I was so lucky to be able to go back to commercials. I was still Mm -hmm. able to have something that I was doing. 20 years later, I made another movie, um, but I was making it for my, you know, just for, to have fun because I, at this point had a big, big commercial career. I mean, I also learned a lot when I went to Sundance, they, the first time directors, they put you in a, in a, in roommate situation with experienced famous directors. So I had as a roommate, Jonathan Demi, before he died, he hadn't directed Philadelphia or Silence of the Lambs yet, but he was great. And then another guy named Paul Bartel, as soon as I got to the condominium, they f- tried to borrow my car. I was the only one who could afford to borrow a car, <laughs> rent a car. I'm like, 
I'm 29. These are 45 year old directors that I'm trying to kiss the ring. And they're like, can we borrow your car? And like an idiot, I gave him my car. I never had it the whole weekend. I'm going to take a shuttle bus around park city. <laughs> People going, didn't you rent a car, man? I said, yeah, I gave oh, it to, to fucking Jonathan Demi. I haven't seen it since. And, uh, Good lesson, though, because I thought, if you're a famous director, you must have the wherewithal to buy a house, feed yourself. Or, I mean, if even if you're renting an apartment, at least you can rent a car. Yeah, there's a lot of moocherism that goes on in that business. I remember being at the Westwood Marquee, going down to get my car, and Oliver Stone is there fighting with the garage attendant. Oh, who, says, who says, you owe $20. He goes, $20? I'm an ambassador to the Asian Film Society. Don't you know who I am? As, you know, this poor, poor Guatemalan is sitting there going, who is this nut? Just give me my 20 bucks and 20 it's bucks. Yeah. <laughs> Jesus, man, it's 20 bucks. Shut up. How much did you make on your last film, Oliver? Uh, yeah, the the Sundance parties, I remember going to those because uh, we get invited to those, and we go up, and they were such a star fucker event of people just, you know, whoever the big Hollywood thing was. Back then, it was, uh, it was uh, a Brad or it was a, uh, what do they call it? Brangelina and Brangelina, and, yeah, different things like that. And everybody's like humping. Like I heard over at the other party, the other houses, you know, and you're, you're house hopping all the time. Yeah. And me, I just want to get drunk and meet some hot chicks and get laid. That was my whole motive. Right. Yeah. And uh, so my favorite thing to do to get the bar cleared, cause there'd be, you know, everybody be trying to get a drink at the bar. I would find a lookalike, like somebody who looked like, anybody like diana ross like that was my favorite if i found somebody look like and they wouldn't they just kind of look like them but i just i'd just be waiting in line going i just want to fucking drink so i can get fucking drunk here and i'd and i'd, and I'd see somebody i'd like i'm like oh my god it's tom cruise over there and like you know everybody like <gasps> run away from the bar and i and i'd saddle up to the bar and they'd be over some poor bastard <laughs> Be stuck with all these people coming after him, and that was the way I got drinks at Sundance. <laughs> but it was anything, just such star fuckery. Yeah, anything to clear a room, and then the, you know, that was, that was also the one of the first environments I was in where I learned that people would not look at you when you, they would talk to you because they were looking at the door, or you know, past you to see if oh, something see better that. was going on. <laughs> And it was really in my year, I had this weird year where the 10 dramatic finalists were, four of them were first-time directors. Mm. One was uh, John Sayles. One was Jim Jarmusch. One was Adam Brooks. One was Bobby Roth. But then also the Coen brothers had their first film in my year. So we're all competing and we're going to these dinners together and people, you know, the kind of conversation would be, um, do you like Utah? And you go, yeah, you know, and you'd be about two sentences into your reply and they go, do you know the Cone brothers? And you go, <laughs> what? And then I was talking about Utah. Yeah, that's, that's true. Who's in your picture. Do you, and you know, I saw the Cone brothers and they, every, it's horrible. So, you know, you would just, you would just learn quickly. You should just be like, yeah, man, I have lunch. We have breakfast every morning. Yeah. Oh, yeah. We get together and shoot the shit. Yeah. In fact, they let me sleep on the couch last night. You know, we all got drunk. And <laughs> I, I held my tongue for most of it. And then I was standing in line at the airport to fly home. And one of the judges, this complete galumph. I'd never heard of him. This self-important journalist was in front of me in the line and uh, to check in and turns around and he said, you're Bruce. And I said, yeah, you're, I said, I, we didn't meet. Da, 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 da. He goes, yeah, Peter, didn't like your film. Oh. I'm, I'm, I'm like, <laughs> great, you know, great. I, I mean, That's I know that because too. I didn't, I know it because you voted for the Cone brothers, but uh, really <laughs> necessary to share that with me. But then I thought, fuck it. I'm going back to yogurt commercials and <laughs> they're going to pay me on time. And nobody's going to borrow my rent a car. It's going to be it's going to be great. So, I the th do you get the thing where I don't know if people do this to you, but they they do the hey I have a script. Do you want a copy? Do you get that? Yep. 
That's how yeah. I did my second movie. I worked with an actor, and at the end of it, he said, you want to read a script? And I was so I was in such a chaotic period in my life. I said, yeah, sure, give me the script. So I, you know, I read it. It was fine. But I, yeah. And he said, what did you think? I said, oh, it was, you know, it was great. It was great. It was really great. <laughs> he goes, well, would you sign on? I said, yeah. I said, he said, because then, you know, we're going to raise the money. I figured, great, I don't have to do anything. And then, you know, two years later, I'm driving home and my phone rings and he goes, yeah. And I, th- I thought, what happened? Did you have penis extension surgery? And he said, no, we raised the money for the film. Oh, my God, I have to make a movie. So <laughs> I have to make a movie. Uh, kill me, dude. Uh, there was one time I was at Sundance and I think we were at the Chevy house, which is I think it was a famous house. It's starting to blur with all my old age. And everybody was there because they thought uh, Tom Cruise's ex-wife was there. I forget her name. I'm horrible with names. I agree with faces. And uh, so I'm there, and I'm wearing, like, my suit. Back then, I, I didn't weigh as much as I did then. I was much better looking. And uh, and these two actors come up to me, and they go, you're that director. And I go, no, I'm just Chris Voss. And they go, no, you are. You're that Hollywood director. And I'm like, I don't even know what Hollywood director. Like, they told me. It just went. And, uh, and I'm like, I don't know, man. I, I give them my business card. And I'm like, look, man, I'm, I just run an agency. I just, <laughs> and like, no, you're just trying, you just don't want to be seen. We got you, man. We got yeah. you. And like, do you want, do you want, do you want our, do you want our, our scripts? <laughs> little, God. Oh, yeah. I know, man. I'm really, and like, literally, I was like trying to get away from him, just moving around the house, trying to get away from him, just get drunk and see how I can get laid with by somebody. <laughs> and they keep following me and they start telling people, they go, he's that director guy. And it's just the leg humping of that industry. It's just, it's just so interesting. But that's what's going to make your book so fun to read, I think, for readers. Anything more we should know about your book, Bruce? Uh, no. You've given me a great, great opportunity to chat and be funny and laugh with you about it. Just uh, go to Amazon or Barnes & Noble or your independent bookstore. I love mm-hmm. independent bookstores. Keep them alive. And uh, buy the book. And I'm really, really dependent on like all authors today uh if you read it and you like it write a review mm-hmm. if you don't if you don't like it keep it to yourself just fuck you <laughs> don't if you see him at sundance don't go yeah. up to him and go yeah i gave it three stars but yeah, no this sounds like it. sounds like a really fun book and you can also see him on brucevandusen.com you can see all of, uh, some of his work there his playlist his films is real as they like to call it. <laughs> That's right. Very good. Uh, and all that good stuff. Check it out, guys. Uh, 60 stories about 30 seconds. How I got away with becoming a pretty big commercial director without losing my soul or maybe just part of it. I read that backwards off the screen. That's, uh, That's a, very skill. impressive. There you go. <laughs> anyway, guys, thanks to Bruce for being with us. Thanks for sharing all this stuff. It's been fun, bud. Thanks, Chris. Thank you. And thanks to my audience for tuning in. Be sure to uh, check out Bruce's book. You can go to Amazon.com. You can also go to Amazon.com forward slash shop forward slash Chris Voss. See all the books of all the wonderful authors that have been on the show. And uh, hit that buy button. And, of course, as Bruce said, give them some wonderful reviews and all that. Because five stars, five stars are always good to give people. I mean, it takes a lot of work to write these damn books. They deserve five stars. It, it takes a lot of time. I'm trying to write one right now. Uh, anyway, guys, go to DCVPN. Go to YouTube.com. Fortune Chris Voss. Hit that bell notification. Follow me on Goodreads.com. Just look for Chris Voss over there. And we'll look forward to seeing you guys again. Be safe. Wear your mask. Register to vote. We'll see you next time.